You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. During the campaign that led to the Second Battle of Manassas in August 1862, a northerner suffered a broken leg when the train he was riding on ran off the rails at Bristow Station after some Confederate troops lifted a section of track. Afterward, the northern civilian was lying on a stretcher when he heard that Stonewall Jackson was nearby. He immediately pleaded with his captors to be lifted up so he could see the famous general. Now, you have to understand that Stonewall wasn't concerned about appearances. His uniform customarily was a single-breasted, threadbare coat that he had worn in the Mexican War, a battered forage cap that he wore with the broken visor pulled far down over his eyes, and an outsized pair of flop-top boots that covered feet estimated at size 14. The general rode a runty, lusterless brown gelding named Little Sorrel, As the pint-sized beast loped down the road, Jackson's big feet were always dangerously close to the ground. The rider and his mount had little likeness to a champion on his charger. Even Henry Kidd Douglas, Jackson's youngest staff member, admitted his chief was, quote, the worst-dressed, worst-mounted, most faded and dingy-looking general ever seen, end quote. Accordingly, when the accommodating rebels at Bristow Station lifted up the northerner to get a look at Jackson, the civilian stared in disbelief, unable to fathom that such a raggedy person could be the famous Stonewall. Then, with his voice tinged with disgust, he cried out, Oh my God, lay me down. The story circulated through the ranks quickly, as such stories do, and soon became a classic inside joke among the men under Jackson's command. For from that time on, every time something happened that was distressing, unexpected, or otherwise discomforting, a soldier was bound to cry out, Oh my God, lay me down! History doesn't record whether Jackson ever heard the joke or had a clue about its meaning, but every soldier in his corps, probably in the entire army, understood it perfectly. Welcome to episode 138 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As we said at the end of the last show, we're going to leave the Peninsula Campaign for a while and head out to the Shenandoah Valley. Only after we cover Stonewall Jackson's famous Valley Campaign in its entirety will we then turn our attention back to the Richmond Front, 
to see how Robert E. Lee saves the Confederacy's capital with the series of bloody, ferocious engagements that came to be known as the Seven Days Battles. Before we talk about the Valley Campaign, though, we're going to talk about Stonewall Jackson. His 1862 campaign in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia catapulted him, at that time, to unrivaled fame in the Confederacy. His accomplishments fit the model of what most Southerners considered superior military leadership. Jackson's boldness and insistence on inflicting the greatest possible damage to the enemy, together with his well-known Christian piety, made him the perfect soldier for the Confederate people. The 1862 Valley Campaign illustrates Jackson's impact on Southern morale. Timing and command style meant everything in terms of why this campaign, which was modest by Civil War standards, nevertheless resonated so powerfully. Between May 8th and June 9th, the time period when Stonewall's campaign unfolded, Confederate fortunes reached a low point. The Federals had captured New Orleans and Nashville, won victories at Forts Henry and Donelson and at Shiloh, secured southern Missouri with the success at Pea Ridge, blunted a quixotic Confederate offensive in the far west at Glorieta Pass, and placed a 100,000-man army at the vital rail center of Corinth, Mississippi. In the Eastern Theater, the CSS Virginia had been scuttled, and the largest Union field army steadily approached Richmond, the fall of which likely would signal the death knell of the Confederacy. In short, the Confederate people hungered for good news from the battlefield, and Stonewall Jackson supplied it with five small engagements that loomed large because of when they came and how they were achieved. Through rapid movement, daring, and aggressiveness, Jackson triumphed at McDowell on May 8th, Front Royal on May 23rd, First Winchester on May 25th, Cross Keys on June 8th, and Port Republic on June 9th. As is said, those clashes scarcely added up to one real battle, especially by later Civil War standards. But in May and early June of 1862, Stonewall Jackson, out in the Shenandoah Valley, had taken the war to the enemy when all other Confederate generals seemed to be retreating and suffering defeats. Had Richmond fallen during the ensuing Seven Days Battles, then the Valley Campaign would likely be merely an interesting footnote in Civil War history. But the Confederate capital didn't fall, and Jackson's quintet of victories out in the Valley, which raised hopes in the hearts of countless Southerners, assumed almost mythical status. History remembers Thomas Jonathan Jackson as Stonewall. His men called him Old Jack, or Old Blue Light, for the fire that burned in his eyes during battle. And cadets at the Virginia Military Institute, where Jackson had been a professor before the Civil War, dubbed him Tom Fool because of his consistently odd behavior. He was a large man, strong of build and close to six feet tall, Deep-set blue eyes stared directly ahead. His hair and beard were brown and slightly curly. A partial deafness in one ear sometimes made it difficult for him to detect distant artillery fire 
or to determine the direction from which it came. On the rare occasions when he laughed, he threw back his head, opened his mouth wide, and emitted no sound whatsoever. He lived simply, arose early, worked hard, and considered duty the primary responsibility of a soldier. His marching pace was a test of endurance, fifty minutes of each hour at nearly a jog, then ten minutes of rest. A one-hour lunch break was the only respite from a marching day that usually lasted seventeen hours. Most Civil War infantry units were lucky to make eighteen miles a day. Jackson expected his men to do twenty-five or thirty miles and then fight a battle. He tolerated no excuse for soldiers breaking ranks. To him, a sick soldier and a straggler were but two of a kind. One of his officers observed that Jackson, quote, classed all who were weak and weary, who fainted by the wayside, as men wanting in patriotism. If a man's face was white as cotton and his pulse so low you could scarcely feel it, he looked upon him as merely an inefficient soldier and rode off impatiently. Thomas J. Jackson was an unlikely combination of opposites. He was a tender husband who doted on children, but was also a pitiless disciplinarian who, as one of his soldiers said, quote, would have a man shot at the drop of a hat and drop it himself, end quote. Jackson taught Bible stories to a Sunday school class for slaves that he had himself founded in Lexington, Virginia. But he worshipped a stern God, and Jackson, like Gideon in the Old Testament, would not hesitate to raise a zealot's sword against his impious foe. He was a lifelong hypochondriac, always seeking relief in peculiar diets, odd exercises, and quack cures. But as a soldier in the field, he endured the worst rigors of a campaign without complaint. In battle, the dull professor, who tediously repeated his textbook lessons in a mind-numbing monotone, was replaced by a fiery commander capable of cunning and innovation. A humble, unassuming citizen at home, seemingly content to putter about his garden, he was, on the battlefield, a savage fighter, compelled to seek summits of glory. Brigadier General Richard Taylor, a participant in the Valley Campaign, once caught a glimpse of Jackson's inner nature. He said, quote, It was but a glimpse, yet in that moment I saw an ambition boundless as Cromwell's and as merciless. End quote. Taylor, the son of General and President Zachary Taylor, there makes reference to Oliver Cromwell, uh, who, to oversimplify things, was an English military and political leader in the 17th century who played a starring role in a civil war against the king, which the king, Charles I, lost. And then Charles also lost his head. Right. At any rate, as for Stonewall Jackson, the conflicts and contradictions were only part of the essential man. To a large extent, Thomas Jackson was the logical product of his past. He was born in 1824 in the mountain town of Clarksburg on Virginia's western frontier, an area that later on during the Civil War would give its allegiance to the Union and become the new state of West Virginia. Jackson came from respectable stock, the son of an amiable young lawyer with an unfortunate tendency to underwrite bad investments. 
The debt-ridden father died of typhoid when little Tom was two years old, leaving an impoverished widow who survived her husband by only five years. Tom, along with his older brother Warren and younger sister Laura, were brought up by several different relatives. Once, the Jackson boys ran away to visit their sister and then ventured farther afield, skylarking on the Mississippi River for several months. Tom returned with a severe illness to show for his travels. The entire experience was one about which Jackson, always quiet and reserved anyway, was forever after especially reluctant to speak of. It was during his unsettled childhood that Jackson first began to complain of a mysterious stomach ailment for which physicians, then or later, could find no explanation. Whether real or imagined, the digestive condition in particular and his uncertain health in general became a central concern for Jackson for the rest of his life and offer explanations for some of his strangest habits. For example, whether studying at West Point or calling with matrimonial intent upon suitable young ladies, uh, he had an affinity for preacher's daughters, uh, or presiding over his military headquarters, Jackson always sat bolt upright, never allowing his spine to touch the back of his chair. The erect posture, he said, kept his internal organs in perfect alignment, preventing any compression that might bring on digestive miseries. Almost inevitably, in following formulas of his own devising, Jackson became a devoted dietitian, convinced, among other things, that Pepper made his left leg itch. As a young officer, he wrote to his sister Laura, urging upon her a breakfast of, quote, stale wheat bread, not less than 24 hours old, fresh meat, broiled or roasted as best, the yolk of one or two eggs, the white is hardly worth eating as it requires digestion and affords but little nutrition, end quote. By the time he achieved fame as a commander in the Civil War, his menu was even more restricted, consisting primarily of plain bread or cornbread, raspberries, and milk. And All right, and while we're at it, let's get something out of the way. The lemons. Since the end of the Civil War, the mythology of Jackson has taken on a life of its own, virtually creating a new man. Perhaps the most amusing myth in the Jackson story is the belief that Jackson sucked a seemingly endless succession of lemons. Henry Kidd Douglas, author of I Rode with Stonewall, is attributed with creating the myth of Jackson's love of lemons. This particular legend has taken on epic proportions, finding expression even today in people leaving lemons on Jackson's grave in Lexington, leaving lemons at the Stonewall Jackson Shrine, and finally to the availability of lemons dress balls at the bookstore of the Stonewall Jackson House in Lexington, Virginia, even though the Jackson House makes it clear that Stonewall's love of lemons is an, an invention of post-war myth-making. Uh, so there you go. Okay. Well, an oddity observed by Jackson's men was that they saw him frequently raise one hand heavenward. They took the gesture to mean that he was calling on the Lord Most High in some fashion. 
But the real reason, as Jackson had explained to a friend years earlier, was much more mundane. His left arm, he said, was heavier than the right, and he lifted it so that, quote, the blood would run back into his body and lighten it, end quote. Jackson's health also seems to have been closely linked, at least in his own mind, to his religion. He was, like most persons in that day and age uh, in America, born and reared a Christian, and he grew into an intensely devout and pious man. Yet for much of his life, Jackson had no formal church affiliation, and as late as his Mexican war service, he admitted that he looked upon prayer and Bible study with, quote, no feeling stronger than having performed a duty, end quote. After the war with Mexico, however, during a tour of duty at Fort Hamilton on Long Island, New York, Jackson suffered through a period of nauseating illness so severe that he feared for his life. While he was laid low and during his recovery, he apparently sensed an affinity between God's wondrous ways and his physical condition. He wrote to his sister, saying, quote, My afflictions, I believe, were decreed by heaven's sovereign. I believe that God would restore me to perfect health, and such continues to be my belief. Although fervent to the point of fanaticism, Jackson was generally tolerant of the creeds and sinful frailties of others. He neither smoked, drank, cursed, danced, played cards, nor attended the theater, yet he displayed little reformist zeal. He refrained from such behavior and pastimes, he once said, less because he was certain they were wicked than because, quote, I know it is not wrong not to do, so I'm going to be on the safe side, end quote. This was the Jackson who became the tithing pillar of his Presbyterian church, and this was the Jackson who became a war leader. He had no particular difficulty in deciding when to render to Caesar and when to render to God. He strongly believed that Sunday should be set aside for worship, and he would not even write a letter on that day. But he reasoned that if the Lord in his wisdom chose to place a vulnerable enemy force in Thomas Jonathan Jackson's path on the Sabbath, then God's will be done. During the Valley Campaign, Stonewall would fight no fewer than three battles on Sunday. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. 
Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Undistracted by frivolities, Jackson was capable of tremendous concentration. It was one of his greatest strengths, and he demonstrated it early. When he reported to West Point in June 1842, under appointment through a congressman who owed his family a political debt, Jackson was a shambling hillbilly with the equivalent of a fourth-grade education. Asked how he might conceivably hope to keep pace academically with his fellow cadets, Jackson replied, I can make it up in study. And he accomplished just that, and by doing very little else. Long after Lights Out had sounded and other cadets were slumbering, Jackson was still at his books by the glow of a coal fire. At West Point, he was silent and unsociable, but he hung on desperately for a semester and then rose slowly in the class rankings, graduating 17th in a class of 59. One of his roommates recalled that, quote, no one I have ever known could so perfectly withdraw his mind from surrounding objects or influences and so thoroughly involve his whole being in the subject under consideration. Jackson strove for military laurels in the same grim, grinding way during the Mexican War. Upon receiving his second lieutenant's commission in 1846, he was assigned to the 1st Artillery Regiment and sent to Point Isabel, Zachary Taylor's base of operations in Texas. Taylor had already taken Monterey, and Jackson feared that the war would soon be over. I envy you men who have been in battle, he told Daniel Harvey Hill, a young officer who had seen action with Taylor. Then Jackson added wistfully, how I should like to be in one battle. Jackson got his wish, and then some. At Winfield Scott's siege of Veracruz, he served with the most advanced, advanced batteries, which frequently came under devastating counter-battery fire from the Mexicans. For gallant and meritorious conduct, he was promoted to first lieutenant. After the Battle of Cerro Gordo, Jackson learned that Captain John Bankhead Magruder had been given command of a captured enemy battery of four guns. Magruder was now looking for officers to assist him. Since he was known as a martinet, however, volunteers were lacking. But Jackson eagerly seized the opportunity. Jackson explained his decision later by saying, quote, When I heard that John Magruder had got his battery, I bent all my energies to be with him, for I knew if any fighting was to be done, Magruder would be on hand. He was right about that. With Magruder, Jackson was in the thick of the American assaults at Churubusco and the castle of Chapultepec and the San Cosme Gate into Mexico City. By the end of the war, Jackson was a brevet major who had been publicly praised by none other than Winfield Scott. 
Moreover, Jackson had learned in Mexico that his mind was at its clearest and his powers of decision at their greatest when the firing was hottest, and that his only fear was, quote, lest I should not meet danger enough to make my conduct conspicuous. Like most mortal, mortals of driving purpose, Thomas Jackson was convinced of his own infallible correctness. In his quiet way, he was thus often exceedingly quarrelsome, and his prickly relationships with his military superiors, as well as his subordinates, would mark his career and frequently blemish it. In war's hustle and bustle, he got along well with the tempestuous Magruder, but in the relative tranquility of peacetime garrison duty, his tendencies toward disputation would soon emerge in an astonishing and obsessive petty controversy with another superior. After his two-year stay at Fort Hamilton, Jackson, in October of 1850, was ordered to Florida, where Seminole Indian renegades, led by one Billy Bowlegs, were from time to time raiding white settlements. At Fort Meade, an unpleasant little outpost on the Peace River southeast of Tampa, Jackson came under the command of another Mexican war veteran, William Henry French. Although both men were brevet majors, French was senior in service and was therefore Jackson's superior. An officer of impressive circumference, French exuded bluff good humor. Behind that facade, however, lay a nature jealous of prerogatives and unwilling to delegate responsibilities. French met his match in Jackson, though, who somehow concluded that he had almost autonomous authority in carrying out his duties as company quartermaster and commissary officer. Matters came to a head in a dispute over who should control the labors of a single workman who was constructing new buildings on the post. Before long, Jackson and French were no longer on sociable speaking terms, and in March 1851, Jackson wrote to department headquarters complaining that French had usurped his, quote, rights over the construction of buildings, end quote. French forwarded the protest with a note of his own, which scoffed at, quote, the pretensions of Brevet Major Jackson, end quote. The result was a rebuke of Jackson, Brigadier General Thomas Childs, commander of the troops in Florida, ruled that Jackson's assertion of independence would, if, shank if sanctioned, quote, reverse established military principle that the senior officer shall command and give all necessary orders, end quote. Childs added that a difference of opinion between officers, quote, ought never to degenerate into personalities or to be considered a just cause for withholding the common courtesies of life so essential in an officer and to the happiness and quiet of garrison life, end quote. That pronouncement should have been more than enough to lay the issue to rest, but neither Jackson nor French was willing to quit, and their continued hostilities took a toll on Jackson's health. Complaining of failing eyesight and other ailments, he reported sick and took to his tent. And from there, incredibly, he launched an investigation into camp gossip that his commanding officer was dallying with a household servant named Julia. Jackson quizzed seven enlisted men and got only inconclusive replies. But a sergeant reported his inquiries to French, 
who was understandably indignant and placed Jackson under arrest for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. In turn, Jackson set about preparing a list of about 20 countercharges and pleading his ill health, audaciously asked French to assign an enlisted man to help him transcribe the accusations, a request that French granted, perhaps thinking that he was merely helping give Jackson enough rope to hang himself. When the post-surgeon intervened, arguing that French's wife was being made the real victim of the vendetta and urging Jackson to cease and desist, Jackson wept in sympathy, but insisted that his conscience compelled him to pursue the matter. Goaded beyond endurance, French finally wrote to Child's superior, Major General David Twiggs, quote, in order that the truth may keep an even pace with so malicious a slander and falsehood, End quote. Julia, he explained, was, quote, a respectable white woman who has lived in my family for nearly nine years, has faithfully attended my wife and children in health and devotedly nursed them in sickness. I know of nothing which should or shall prevent me from appearing in public as in private what I am and ought to be, her friend and protector, End quote. Pressing his own charges against Jackson, he promised that, quote, when Major Jackson is brought to trial for his outrageous conduct, the evidence which I will bring before the court will cover him with the infamy he deserves, end quote. By the time the disgraceful episode was ended, the War of Words had reached all the way to Washington and landed in the lap of the General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, who bounced the whole matter back to Twiggs. That officer, utterly fed up, impatiently ruled that French had, quote, shown himself incapable of conducting the service harmoniously at a detached post, end quote, and ordered him transferred to another station in a subordinate role. Although rebuked by General Scott, Jackson was allowed to remain at his post and escaped further official censure. Nevertheless, he seized upon an opportunity to resign from the Army in August 1851 and joined the faculty at VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, in Lexington. His friend from Mexican War Days, Daniel Harvey Hill, now a professor at neighboring Washington College, had helped arrange the appointment. One of Jackson's first acts at VMI was to ask the cadet adjutant for a copy of the Institute's regulations. On receiving it, Jackson declared, This is our chart. And he meant it. Professor Jackson's unbending adherence to the rule book would be the bane of cadets, and student notebooks contained such scrawled grumblings as, Old Jack skinned me today, I tell you he did. And, he will skin on anything. Jackson could strictly enforce regulations, but try as he might, he couldn't compel students to take an interest in his boring lectures. As already mentioned, to most cadets, he was Tom Fool and a subject of ridicule. Yet the situation had a serious side. On one occasion, Jackson's discourse was interrupted by chatter from a sector of the classroom where sat James A. Walker, one of VMI's brighter students and livelier spirits. Jackson at first pointed an accusing finger at another cadet, then settled on Walker as the culprit and placed him on report. 
The unhappy incident led to a court-martial in which Walker defended himself. Either I did make noise or I did not. When the noise was made, Major Jackson accused Mr. Mason of making it. It is strange that he should accuse Mr. Mason of making noise if he did not think he made it, and it is stranger still that he should report me if he thought Mr. Mason made it. Despite such inexorable logic, Walker was found guilty of insubordination, and only a few months before his scheduled graduation, was expelled from VMI. Outraged, Walker challenged Jackson to a duel. Although there was only a slight chance that Jackson would accept, dueling was, after all, to him, unchristian, VMI Superintendent Franklin H. Smith nevertheless was so concerned that he wrote to Walker's father about his son, quote, I would advise you to come up at once and take him home, as I have reason to believe he may involve himself in serious difficulty. End quote. James Walker left peaceably, but he and Jackson would meet again. In Jackson's personal life, bliss and tragedy were intertwined. Only a few weeks before Jackson took up his post at VMI, a physician had prescribed marriage and buttermilk to settle his nervous stomach. Soon, following the doctor's prescription, Jackson was courting Miss Eleanor Junkin, daughter of the Reverend Dr. George Junkin, president of Washington College. They were married, with Ellie's father officiating, in August 1853. The union was, quote, a great source of happiness, Jackson wrote to his sister, but after only 14 months, Ellie was dead, along with the couple's stillborn baby. Jackson sought comfort in his Christian faith. His religion, he wrote his sister, quote, is all that I desire it to be. I am reconciled for my loss and have joy and hope of a future reunion where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest, End quote. After a trip to Europe in the summer of 1856, Jackson returned filled with renewed matrimonial purpose. He began corresponding with Mary Anna Morrison, daughter of the Reverend Dr. Robert Hall Morrison, who had been the first president of Davidson College. Jackson had met Anna, as she was called, several years before, while she was visiting her sister, Mrs. D.H. Hill, in Lexington. Now, during the Christmas holiday, he arrived unannounced at Anna's North Carolina home, and made it clear to a somewhat bemused Reverend Morrison that he sought his daughter's hand in marriage. By the time Jackson left, he and Anna were engaged, and he was shortly writing from Lexington to his betrothed, saying, quote, And as my mind dwells on you, I love to give it a devotional turn by thinking of you as a gift from our Heavenly Father. They were married in July of 1857, Anna adored Jackson, yet domiciling with him demanded an almost saintly tolerance for his daily schedule and orderly routine, which Anna described as, quote, perfectly systematic, end quote. He arose each morning at six and knelt in private prayer. A cold bath and a brisk walk, undertaken without regard for the weather, were followed at the stroke of seven by family prayer, which his servants were required to attend. He never waited for anyone, wrote Anna, not even his wife. After breakfast, Jackson went to VMI, where he taught from 8 until 11. 
Returning home, he studied, first his Bible, and then his lessons for the next day. For this part of his regimen, he stood in front of a high desk, a posture that was presumably even less compressive of his interior systems than sitting bolt upright. During this time of study, Anna said, he would not permit any interruption. Midday dinner came at one o'clock, followed dutifully by a half hour of conversation that, said Anna, quote, was one of the brightest periods in the home life, end quote. Afternoons were given over to working in his garden or on the 20-acre farm the Jacksons had bought near Lexington. In the evenings, there was more study, but this time, because his increasingly weak eyes now rebelled against the use of artificial light, Jackson sat with his face to the wall, silent as a sphinx, reviewing the next day's lessons in his mind. He firmly established that during this period, he was not to be disturbed by any conversation, and then to bed. All of this came to an end on Sunday, the 21st of April, 1861. Jackson had received a message requiring him to lead a contingent of VMI cadets to Richmond, where they would act as drill masters for the Virginia recruits mustering in to fight in the Civil War that had just begun. The departure from Lexington was scheduled for 1 p.m., and although the cadets were in ranks, ready to go early, Jackson kept them waiting, standing there in the street, until the precise minute, before ordering the march to get underway. And with that, Major Thomas Jackson, at the age of 37, was once again going off to war. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Mighty Stonewall by Frank Vandiver. As some of you may recall, back in episode number 57, we recommended Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend by James I. Robertson, Jr. And if you're looking for the most complete biography on Jackson, that's it. But Robertson's study weighs in at nearly a thousand pages. So if you don't want to dive into all of that, then consider Vandiver's work, which is half the length and features fluid prose and judicious analysis. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We know that some of you just listened to the podcast and may have never visited the website or checked out the show's Twitter feed or Facebook page, but we wanted to let you know that sometimes you'll miss out on some things. Like this past week or so when we posted some photos from a trip that I made recently to the Pea Ridge Battlefield with my dad. Yeah, um, Tracy was visiting family in her hometown of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and visited Pea Ridge. Uh, while I stayed here in Colorado and held down the fort at home. Uh, But we are planning a trip east this spring, when hopefully we'll get to visit a few battlefields together. Anyway, we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank. Lynn and Lon both joined up this week. Just yesterday, we continued with the New Orleans story arc with the members episode number 26, in which we talk about the mutiny at Fort Jackson there along the Mississippi below New Orleans in April 1862. So it's really interesting stuff that we're glad to share with members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Thanks, y'all. Rich and I appreciate your support. 
And then, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with Stonewall Jackson's story. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.